Good afternoon. I'm Scott Kennedy. I'm senior advisor here in the Freeman Chair in China Studies, and it's uh, exciting to invite you to today's talk. You may have gotten some misinformation. There will be no McDonald's, Burger King, or anything like that provided here today, but there will be much other better food for thought. So, but I, I appreciate that. Hopefully you won't uh, feel like we've, tr we've tricked you in any way. Um, the uh, topic uh, of today's talk uh, is uh, on, on Bill's book, China's Crisis of Success. Now you've all, you've all heard about the coming collapse idea, the trap transition, capitalism with Chinese characteristics, the Beijing consensus, uh, and Bill uh, differs uh, from all of them. Uh, perhaps some of his ideas share some themes with uh, Oy and Walder's uh, idea of Growing Pains, a book that came out in 2010, but he has a much, much broader uh, agenda. Um, I want to introduce uh, uh, Bill, and I'm going to turn the floor over to him, and then we're going to have a conversation uh, between us and, the, and then with all of you. Uh, but just, just uh, I, I want to introduce his spirit before I introduce the person, uh, because this is a really brash book. Um, and uh, if, you, if you go through it carefully the way I did, you'll see that uh, uh, he has a real intellectual chip on his shoulder. Uh, he has an axe to grind. Uh, you might even say scores to settle, uh, but he lets the data do the talking. Uh, he's against fads, he's against ideology, he's against lazy thinking. Uh, and he's deeply comparative, um, and I, I share a deep respect for that uh, desire to compare. Uh, and this, so this is a book that's about China, but it's really uh, not about China relative to theory, but about China relative to its neighbors and others in the world. Uh, this book's also, it's not a dissertation, uh, but it represents the collective legacy of a life's work. Uh, Bill's more than earned the right to write this kind of book. Uh, he's a senior fellow at Harvard's Asia Center, but that doesn't begin to explain why this book is so important and why we all ought to be reading it. He's one of uh, America's true uh, Asia experts as an analyst, an advisor, and a scholar. His input is sought by investors and governments around the world. Uh, he spent three decades in the investment community at Bankers Trust, Bank Boston, uh, and Nomura. He's an intrepid traveler. He is the Owen Lattimore of the 21st century, uh, who traveled for a dec couple decades around Western China. Uh, Bill's traveled a little further, but he had the help of planes. Uh, he's worked at RAND and directed their Center for Asia Pol Pacific Policy. He was president of the Fung Global Institute. Uh, he's the author of at least uh, seven books. Among them, The Rise of China, How Economic Reform is Creating a New Superpower, which came out in 1993, uh, and America in Asia, The Coming Transformation of Asian Geopolitics, which came out from Rand in 2007. Uh, he's often called a panda hugger, uh, but he just calls it as he sees it, not as he wants to see it. And today he's going to continue with that tradition, but tell a complex story I'm sure that will pique your attention today and hopefully will lead you to look at the book uh, and uh, learn a lot. So as I said, we're going to uh, have him make his presentation. We'll have a conversation, uh, including all of you. Please join me in welcoming Bill Overholt.
Thanks, Scott. I, I will try to live up to at least a quarter of that. Um, I want to thank CSIS for sponsoring this presentation. Uh, no institution contributes more to our understanding of uh, China and other Asian issues than CSIS. I also want to thank Donald Trump for ensuring that nobody in the city has anything better to do than, <laughs> than attend China lectures. Um, See if I can get this to work. Okay, so I'm here to peddle a book. Um, but uh, more importantly, I'm uh, peddling a, a way of understanding China. Uh, China is the latecomer in a group of Asian miracle economies. And seeing China through the lens of the earlier Asian miracles often leads to very different conclusions from a specialist looking just at China. Um, in the 1980s, I saw that Deng Xiaoping was basically just copying the lessons of miracle development in South Korea, Taiwan, and a couple others. And based on that, I argued that uh, in, throughout the 80s that China would become a new superpower. That led to my book that Scott mentioned, the, the Rise of China, How Economic Reform is Creating a New Superpower, 26 years ago. Uh, that view was not popular at the time. The leading review in London said, uh, Mr. Overholt's bank must have paid him a lot of money to write such nonsense. There were a lot of reviews like that. So I became known as the ultimate China bull. In the new century, it was very clear that Hu Jintao's government was not following the, the new playbook. Sorry. That's the first one. And I wrote an article for uh, Washington Quarterly called Reassessing China. Thank you, CSIS. Uh, uh, and then uh, uh, it became clear that although China is not following the playbook of the earlier Asian miracles, it faces the same kind of developmental issues that they faced at the end of the 1970s and through the 1980s. Um, the earlier Asian miracles were very simple 
economies and very simple polities. That's what made the system work. Uh, the economies were basically landlords and peasants and some road builders and some cheap socks manufacturers. Uh, and that was an economy that was simple enough that even a government could understand it. Um, politics was simplified by intense fears. You'll notice that all the Asian economic miracles were countries that were incredibly uh, traumatized. It was Japan after World War II, South Korea after the Korean War, Taiwan after the Chinese Civil War, uh, Singapore after a very traumatic separation from Malaya, and China after a really bad hair century. A fear of social collapse ch changes politics. Leaders know that they have to do really big things and take really big risks to avoid collapse. And the people accept extraordinarily stressful policies because they f fear civil war and they fear their children starving. With the right economic politics, uh, policies, uh, Leninist politics can actually work. Uh, message to fearful Washington policymakers. The model works only under extremely constrictive circumstances. It is not a model you can spread everywhere, and Chinese leaders understand that. China's early reformers took extraordinary risks to save their country. In a population of peasants, communist political power was ensured by detailed control of the life of every peasant through a system of communes. Those communes gave the party control over everybody's income, how they spent their day, who they married, where they were located, even what they wore and what their haircuts were. But then the farmers in Anhui province started taking the land back from the communes. And Deng Xiaoping noticed that the economy started to improve and people were happier. And so he took an extraordinary risk. He gave up the principal communist lever of political control in the hope that economic improvement uh, would lead people to give stronger support to the Communist Party. When we look back at that through an economic lens, it looks like an obvious thing to do. But if you were Deng Xiaoping looking forward, it was an incredible risk. And later, Zhu Rongji and Jiang Zemin did the same things with urban industry. They shed the most important controls over workers' lives. They took a risk that instead of having all the revenues of all enterprises come directly into the government, that, that the economy would grow and these com companies would pay taxes and the t taxes would somehow pay for these things. Again, looking back, it looks obvious. Looking forward, it was an incredible risk. And that kind of behavior, taking great risks, 
in the belief that improving society will ultimately enhance support for the party is what a vanguard party does. And I'm going to come back to that concept of a vanguard party at the end of this talk because uh, its attenuation is the core of what's changing Ch China today. So, uh, if you look back at the other Asian miracles, each one of them comes to a crisis of success. Now, what's a crisis of success? Uh, think of an entrepreneur in Silicon Valley who invents a really cool new widget, and the business just takes off. And it's run for quite a while as the personal entourage of that entrepreneur. And then things get complicated. Suddenly, to get enough capital, they need to list on the stock exchange. And they need real professional accounting and real professional human resources management and a board of directors and a public rule book. And they either make it through that Elon Musk moment or they don't. And that's, that's a crisis of success. Simplicity and success become complexity. The Asian crises of success share certain characteristics. The country finds itself over leveraged, threatened by debt, bubbles, inflation, bankruptcies. Second, the big companies find themselves in difficulty. All of, almost all of South Korea's chaebol eventually went bust. The Guomindang in Taiwan had 40 big conglomerates owned by the party. Uh, and uh, by in 1990, they all went into intensive care. Uh, China's, China is in exactly this situation. Uh, the economy is over leveraged, as Nick Lardy, who's sitting here, has taught us. Uh, China's state enterprises can't earn back their cost of capital. And the state finds itself facing tens of thousands, a couple hundred thousand demonstrations a year, which didn't happen before. The, the curve is like this. And it's challenging. Its policy control is challenged by extraordinarily powerful interest groups. What do I mean by interest groups? Well, let me give you an example. The petroleum faction control the flow of energy resources through China. So over time, this is trillions of dollars of resources. There's an official price and a market price. Uh, and they arbitrage that and pocket much of the difference. And that interest group was run by one of the nine members of the Politburo Standing Committee, who are the, the people who run China. And the individual Politburo Standing Committee member happened to be Zhou Yangkang, who was China's chief of security. 
Now that's a powerful interest group. It makes the NRA look like a puppy dog. China's interest groups are the size of European countries. And it's about as difficult to manage them as it is to manage the EU. So they get into this crisis of success. It's got an economic aspect and a political aspect. And at this point, leadership counts. In Taiwan, uh, the leader was a very tough character, the Jiang Jingbo, the son of Jiang Kai-shek. He, he was a member of the Soviet Communist Party. He was Taiwan's toughest uh, security chief. Unlike the soft folks on the mainland who take dissidents and send them to jail and let them rot there, uh, under Jiang Jingbo, a lot of people were taken out to Green Island and shot. So this was a, a tough, unsympathetic character. But he was close to his society, and he understood that changes were coming that he was going to have to accommodate. So he engineered a very gradual uh, economic and political transition. South Korea was the polar opposite. Park Chung-hee was this old uh, general who, who uh, engineered the, the saving of his country, but he didn't get it economically or politically. So the Scheibel mostly went bust uh, uh, in a huge debacle. And in October of 79, students planned a great demonstration. And the Korean CIA, which was close to the society and understood the changes, said, you're going to have to accommodate. You're going to have to liberalize. Pak's bodyguards said, no, station sharpshooters on the tops of tall buildings and shoot the student leaders. And Pak went with the bodyguards. So the Korean CIA chief invited Pak out to dinner with two uh, pretty girls. And in Korea, they call them sing-song girls and shot him in the head. Uh, that's a diff more difficult transition. Uh, how has China's, let's see if we can get this to move. It's saying next. Maybe I need to point it at the right thing. Sorry. Yeah, that's what I'm doing. How did China's crisis of success emerge? Well, we go back to Zhu Rongji, 1994 to 2003. Zhu Rongji was the ultimate market reformer. He laid off 45 million manufacturing workers. By the way, he found almost all of them jobs in the services economy, which is what our politicians don't do. He much more sensible about that. Uh, but remember what it did to our politics when three million manufacturing workers lost their jobs in 10 years. And Zhu set about cutting the Chinese government in half, 
Can you imagine what the reaction would have been if Ronald Reagan had stood up and said, I'm going to cut the U.S. government in half? It would have been outrage. Uh, it's much more difficult to cut the Chinese government in half. It has a much more important role in society. It's just much bigger. But he mostly did it at the top. And people accepted that stress because they were afraid of the place collapsing. The banking system was teetering and everybody knew that. But by the end of his term, they were stressed out. As I went around China in 2001, 2002, people expressed hatred for Zhu Rongji. Uh, he's back to being a hero now, which is the right assessment of him. Uh, but Chinese people had had it. So we got a new leader, Hu Jintao, who comes in and promises a harmonious society. And harmonious society had all sorts of deep philosophical uh, roots, but in practical terms, it meant no more Zhu Rongji market reforms. Not going to have that stress anymore. Uh, and moreover, the government was a very sluggish government. Uh, Hu Jintao was crippled by severe diabetes by the time he became the top leader. He came across almost like a robot. The Politburo Standing Committee had nine people who made decisions by majority vote. We have an institution in this country that works that way, called the Supreme Court, very judicious, not terribly fast. Uh, things were sluggish. Uh, plus, the old guys, Jiang Zemin's uh, crew, kept interfering and blocking what, what Hu Jintao wanted to do. Uh, so after a few years, uh, people started saying, uh, we're getting behind the curve on market reforms. And all these political things are happening. The ministries aren't listening to the prime minister. The provinces aren't listening to the central government. The military is doing all sorts of things that it's not supposed to do. We have to get ahead of the curve, and we have to get on top of things. This is China's crisis of success. The leaders had to get economic reform going again and had to get the politics under control. On the economic side, they worked with Nobel Prize winners, with the World Bank, uh, uh, put out probably the most carefully thought through economic plan in world history. And it, it all starts with the concept of market allocation of resources, and derives about 300 reform policies from that uh, principle. It made a lot of sense. Uh, on the political side, I said, we got to get things under control. We have to undertake a drastic centralization. So they changed the Politburo Standing Committee from nine nine guys to seven, all guys. And they eliminated the extreme positions, the moderately democratic reformers like Wang Yang and the quasi-Maoist types like Bo Xilai. 
And they created an, a new National Security Council. They never had a coordinator. Uh, and all sorts of what they call small leading groups in charge of economic reform, financial reform, Taiwan policy. Uh, and they put these all under one guy. And they decided to give that guy immediate control of the military, whereas Hu Jintao had to wait two years. These were consensus decisions, and this is very important. They were separate from the decision that Xi Jinping should be that leader. So, market allocation of resources, centralization, um, immediately the problems began. Market allocation of resources uh, it, it implied a squeeze on the state enterprises. And state enterprises didn't like that, and the banks didn't like that, because the, the state enterprises can only pay back the banks based on their special privileges. And if the market was making decisions, then party groups and government groups weren't making those decisions. Uh, the, the most severe squeeze was on uh, local, provincial, and city-level uh, officials. And Xi Jinping uh, wanted to also reform the military. So he took on every power group in Chinese society at the same time. There's no more dangerous strategy that a leader can pursue than taking on every power group in society at the same time. Other examples? The Shah of Iran in the late 70s, the Polish government uh, uh, around the same time. Uh, but he had a hammer to get these groups under control, and that was the anti-corruption policy. Uh, and he set about using that hammer. The first big tiger he went after was Zhou Yangkong, the head of the petroleum faction. And then he went after top military leaders, uh, and so on. At this point, there are hundreds of thousands of these leaders, many of them very senior, in jail. But that creates another problem. The anti-corruption campaign is also taking on every major power group in Chinese society at the same time. So he's doubling down on a very dangerous strategy. So where did this leave his administration? Well, they came in thinking that they might be in the midst of a, a planned coup. And with all the struggle with all these groups, uh, one absolutely top tremendously successful executive that I quote in the book, said to me, Bill, the atmosphere in Beijing is you die or I die. Very different from the image you see on TV of the perfectly coiffed, totally confident leader with all the people sitting behind him all with the same black suit and the same white shirt, and the same red tie, same black hair. Uh, so very, very dangerous, contentious situation. So they decided, first term we're going to have to spend consolidating power. 
And boy, did he do a good job of that. He eliminated all the rivals. Uh, and then the second term, which we're about a year into, is for reform, uh, to actually implement the policies. And they got to thinking, we're making an awful lot of people angry. Uh, maybe after Xi Jinping's second term, uh, somebody's going to come in and reverse all those policies, like what Trump is doing to Obama. And maybe there's going to be retribution. Uh, maybe we won't be safe. So they figure they better provide for a third term. How have they done? So now we're into the period of implementing actual policies. How have they done on that? Well, in every area, Xi Jinping's administration has refused to make fundamental choices. On the economy, they had a choice. We can have fast growth and slow reform. We have fast reform and slow growth. Xi Jinping said, we're going to have both. And uh, the relation between the economics and the politics, that we're going to we're going to marketize the state enterprises, but we're going to strengthen the party committee in every enterprise, private and public, to make sure that there was a politician who has final say on any strategic business decision. And we're going to have resources allocated on a market basis, but innovation and success are going to come from a couple trillion dollars worth of subsidies to these big state enterprises. And we're going to have the rule of law, but we're going to strengthen the party commission that actually tells the courts what to decide. This is not Mao Zedong or Deng Xiaoping or Zhu Rongji making decisions. This is Theresa May. But there's also a pattern to the indecision. Wherever there's a t tension between market allocation and political control, the choice is always in favor of political control. The period of Mao was a period where the slogan was politics in command. The period of Deng Xiaoping and Jiang Zemin was economics in command. We're now into a period of mostly politics in command. And that is ominous for the economy. Um, in all of this, it's important to define the position of Xi Jinping, because what our media and many of our scholars tell us is that this is the omnipotent dictator for life. Um, and yes, uh, he defeated all his adversaries. And he's got this long list of titles. And he's in the Constitution. And he's got the possibility of a third term. That's pretty impressive. He's even telling us that China's success, there's a whole movie about this, is not due to Deng Xiaoping. It's, it's due to him and his father, to Xi Jinping and his father. Uh, all powerful leader. The, the, the test of a leader is whether he can implement his policies. And there, Xi Jinping 
has not done so well. They have not implemented effectively in most areas economic or market allocation of resources. There are a few successes. Military uh, reform seems to be one of them. But he faces universal pushback and very limited success. We're told that Xi Jinping is China's Putin. This is almost exactly the opposite of reality. Xi Jinping is a creature of the Communist Party. Putin, Putin's party is a creature of Putin. Putin's party is there to make Putin richer and more powerful. Xi Jinping is an executive hired and given a job to do. He's accountable to the party. And he's not getting that job done very well. So you have to take another look at this uh, image. Uh, the reality is that uh, top executives who have a problem in implementing their policies uh, slowly get into difficulties. Think of Jeff Immelt at GE. And it took a while for the, for the problems to come home to roost. China's bigger and more complicated, so it takes longer. Uh, think about that accumulation of titles. If you're running a big company, do you make yourself director of every, every subsidiary, of, of every unit? Confident, competent executives don't do that. They stay on top. They delegate. Um, Deng Xiaoping governed China for years as honorary chairman of the Chinese Bridge Player Society. That's authority. Deng Xiaoping would go down to Shenzhen and give a speech, 1992, and the lives of 1.3 billion people would change. That's power. A key lesson of the early Asian miracles is that the pr pressures of political complexity are inexorable. The current Chinese administration has chosen the Pak Chung-hee strategy of sitting on the lid of the boiling kettle. The result is a circle of repression, pushback, repression, more pushback, more repression. Uh, this can't go on forever. And the tides of opinion are shifting. Five years ago, China was one of the only developing countries in modern history where academics and students supported the government. They said, yeah, there's some repression that we don't like, but, but look at what this party has done for the people of China. Uh, we can put up with a good many problems in return for bringing China into the modern world, for ending hunger, ending uh, uh, lack of education and many other things. No more. All the groups of China's professionals, the leading edge of society, have shifted 
their views. And today they express a kind of helpless but emphatic alienation. Of decisive importance is the business community. The state enterprise executives have lost about half of their income. They don't like it, but that's not the important thing. The important thing is the private sector. The private sector provides almost all of the growth uh, in China's economy. It provides almost all of the new jobs. It provides almost all of the innovation. The, the party secretary is still the arbiter of social justice. And so he can quite legitimately call up an entrepreneur and say, I got a new project downtown that would be very good for our city. Uh, I need a million dollars contribution from you by next Tuesday. Unspoken, if I don't get it by next Tuesday, you're shut down. I've been personally involved in situations where companies were shut down for being a little bit slow in the contributions. As the central government tries to deleverage, this creates a terrible squeeze on that local party secretary. Because the baseline is that China's localities have most of the social responsibilities, but a very limited flow of revenue. And now they're telling, being told, you have to be a lot less innovative in your financing. There's going to be a lot less money coming your way. And so what are they going to do? They're going to call up and say, oh, but I've got three projects downtown. And this creates real issues. So you, you can just feel the tide changing. This doesn't mean that China is headed for a great collapse. And to understand why it's not, you have to throw out an awful lot of Western social science. Let me start with the economists. The great economists, development economists our day are, of our day are Asimoglu and Robinson. And they have shown quite persuasively that if you're going to develop an economy for the long run, you have to have an inclusive society. And they're constantly derogating China because it's not a democracy. Therefore, it's not an inclusive economy. Well, that link between political inclusiveness and economic inclusiveness is all ideology, not evidence. So let me tell you how the Asian miracle economies create an inclusive economy. They start. You start with an economy of peasants, and the resource is land. And so you spread the land around in a great land reform. Everybody gets a piece of the action. And then you give everybody a, an education. By the way, democracies can't do land reforms. And democracies have been consistently, India, for instance, consistently incapable of providing universal education. You give everybody a shot by providing basic education. And then you build great infrastructure so that companies that make textiles and assemble computers all want to come and exploit this wonderful situation. And India and the other 
democracies at this level of development typically can't do that. China typically builds about as many good roads in six months as India has built since independence in 1947. Think about that. And then uh, you try to give everybody a home. You don't see this mentioned much in the Congressional Commission uh, reports here, but China has the world's highest rate of home ownership. About 85% of the people own homes. It's, it's about 64% here in our country. And we're, we're a country that's big on home, home ownership. So everybody gets a piece of the action again. And, and then they all have a great property price inflation. You remember what happened in Japan. It happened in South Korea. And it happened in Taiwan. So this home, however humble, suddenly is worth a heck of a lot more. Now I'll mention just one other aspect of the inclusiveness. These in labor-intensive industries that provide everybody with a job, what do they want? They want women. In traditional agriculture, family survival may depend on a margin of muscle power. So they just want boys. The textile factories, computer assembled factories, they want women. Typical company that I used to visit, 11 Taiwanese bosses and 8,000 Chinese women. Now it's still unfair that the bosses are 11 Taiwanese guys. But the people getting the jobs in the modern economy are women. They will go 500 miles, 1,000 miles, 1,500 miles to get these jobs. Gets them out from under the thumbs of their fathers and brothers. The freedom in all the volumes of interviews that are available, that's what they love. And they're, they're the ones who learn how the modern world works. And they're the ones who accumulate a little nest egg so that if they go back to the village, they're the ones who have a down payment on the house. The result of this is a very fundamental shift in favor of inclusiveness. And I'll give you one measure of how powerful that is. Traditionally, a woman had to bring a dowry. Now the man better bring an apartment or she's not gonna date you. That's a male dowry. Um, so China has these extraordinary economic strengths and we should never forget them. But it's got some very serious emerging weaknesses. Xi Jinping's government is starving and cannibalizing the private sector, which is the, where all the good stuff comes from. The state, it's not only that the private sector doesn't have the funding it needs, it's the state enterprises are eating up the private sector. And the thought behind this is that, and this is traditional socialist thought, they'll have more political control if they own these big enterprises. 
The history of so actual socialism shows that the opposite is the case. The big companies always end up owning the government. And that's how you get the kind of stagnation that's happened in Japan. It's not an issue whether it's private or, or state. It's an issue of whether you've got companies that are in a position to control the politicians. And above all, we've got this return to politics and command. Uh, this is going to have ominous effects for the economy. And that evolution toward uh, protected big state enterprises, which leads to a kind of relative stagnation, is what Xi Jinping was hired to avoid. Uh, it's not going to happen. I apologize. I keep doing the same thing, and it keeps. Maybe if I go up and click on that. <laughs> okay, got to go. Uh, above all, China faces a very fundamental political problem. I began this talk by remarking on the courage displayed by Deng Xiaoping and Zhu Rongji as they jeopardized the most powerful levers of political control in order to, to deliver benefits to the population. That is what made China successful. That is why people venerate the party as a vanguard. The counterparts today would be a decision to step back from direct control of the state enterprises, to step back from direct control of the courts. And there would be many uh, benefits, both strictly economic and in terms of confidence and security and a sense of justice. Uh, but instead, what we're seeing is a party that is grasping for every little lever of political control. Everything. We're not going to give up any lever of control. This is turning the party into an interest group. That evolution from vanguard party into an interest group is what destroyed the Kuomintang's dominant position in Taiwan politics. This is a much greater threat to the long-term future of the party uh, than corruption, a uh, much greater threat than a decline in economic performance. It takes a long time. I'll just close with the thought, this is China's most important problem. This is our most important problem. We have a more complicated international situation because in both sides of the Pacific we have countries governed uh, by parties, and it's a bipartisan remark, that have basically abandoned their, their uh, social uh, uh, challenge and, and focus 
for narrow partisan interest group advantage. Um, let me stop there. Thank you. Bill, thank you so much. Uh, fantastic presentation. Um, and uh, we have a few copies of the book outside. Bill will be available after to sign a few of them. Uh, we will, probably will run out of books on hand, but uh, we will uh, still be able to arrange copies to be sent to anyone who, who wants them today. Um, I'm going to try uh, we, we, uh, to do my best imitation of David Rubenstein, uh, uh, who has a program on Bloomberg. Uh, minus the few billion dollars that he has, uh, to ask a few, initially just a few brief questions um, to, to get the ball rolling. And then I'm going to ask one longer question, uh, which you could still give a short answer to. And then I'll uh, open it up to, to the audience. So because you've traveled around Asia and been working on the region for so long, um, I was just curious, what's the most interesting city in Asia that you've been to? <laughs> uh that's a tough choice. Uh, I'd say for uh, probably be Beijing overall, the uh, combination of politics and culture and history uh, uh, is, is unique. Yeah. And you're the smartest political leader in the region that you've gotten to meet. Jurongji. Uh, uh, I never met Deng Xiaoping. I think if I had met him, uh, he used to come to our our bank uh, uh, project closings. But but I was uh, analytic and strategist type, not the deal closer type. So I didn't get to go to those meetings. But I did have time with Zhu Rongji, and um, he was this marvelous, decisive, brilliant. Guy, uh, he, he validated uh, my uh, thesis about watching the smaller countries. Uh, he knew more about how Park Chung he had made decisions and why than any Western scholar of Korea I've ever met. Um, uh, he was a tough, decisive leader, but uh, his confidence made him extraordinarily. Open. I, I asked him one time. They had to close the Guangdong International Trust and Investment Company, which is the, the largest borrower of foreign exchange in China. And uh, it's incredible to have them close uh, and bankrupt a huge company. I, I said, didn't that cause you some political problems? He said, yeah, they're trying to get rid of me again, but I think I'll be here a while longer. <laughs> and he was also a good politician. I, I gave him a copy of this book, The Rise of China, at one point. And he said, oh, I, I've got a copy of this. I've, I've read it and keep it on the shelf beside my desk, but I'll keep this one too. It's more valuable since it's got your signature. <laughs> and, you know, it didn't matter whether it was true or not. Uh, he had the 
the tough, decisive skills of an authoritarian <laughs> uh, leader, and he had the the political savvy, uh, which not all his colleagues shared, uh, of uh, of a real politician. So I, yes. I, I, I'm a big fan of Xi Rongji. I can tell. I can tell. And if you look at Xi Jinping's National Day speech uh, or New Year's Day speech, the books behind him, he had different types of books on the shelf behind him. <laughs> Maybe we ought to send him a copy of your book. Um, uh, last quick question. Um, scariest moment in Asia or in China or uh, challenging? Scariest moment, that's easy. Um, I was in charge of personal security for Cory Aquino in the Philippine Revolution, and uh, Marcos uh, hired an assassin and uh, tried to uh, incarcerate her or kill her in a couple of other ways, and I was in charge of stopping that, and, and I did, but then uh, General Ver, Marcos's top general, had what was reputed to be the, the best assassination team in Asia. And they chased me in three countries. And I had to run really fast. Uh, <laughs> so that, that was the scariest moment. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you're a good runner. <laughs> um, OK, let me ask um, about um, what happens if China doesn't follow your advice um, and uh, change direction. Um, not in terms of what the consequences specifically are for China, but this, this, uh, folk, this comparative lens that you use. What's the other country out there that is China's future if, if China doesn't make the right choices? Is it Brazil, South Korea, Indonesia? Where, where, well, what are they looking at? On, on the economic side, their future is the stagnation of Japan after uh, starting in the late 1970s. Uh, uh, Almost all Western analysts date Japan's lost decades to the financial crash of 1990. If you look at the, the growth curves, it was the end of the, the 70s. And that, that's when the big companies uh, took control of Japanese politics. The retail, banking, uh, agriculture, construction, and property. Uh, I even divided the legislature in, in, into uh, tribes, depending on who was owned by those. And they defended themselves against local competition and foreign competition, and the economy stagnated. Uh, that, that's, that's where this kind of system uh, heads. And uh, it's worth reminding uh, some of our political leaders that we were terrified of that system with all these big companies being supported by the government and this industrial policy that intended to reinvent the East, greater East Asia co-prosperity sphere. And uh, they're undervaluing their currency and they had the, all the foreign exchange in the world and they were buying all our best golf courses and all the hotels in Los Angeles. Uh, Oh, they're just going to take us over. That's not the way it works. Um, politically, the, one, the only thing you can predict is that things are not going to remain the same. Either it's going to get a lot worse, 
the cycle of repression, pushback, repression is just going to go on and on. It's going to get really, really nasty. Or they're going to find some way to liberalize. I don't mean necessarily copying Westminster or Washington, D.C., but they need some analog of market allocation of resources in the, in the political arena, some relatively automatic way of making contentious decisions uh, and aggregating interests uh, that's considered legitimate by the population. We do that through elections and the rule of law. Uh, I think I think we ought to phrase it that way to give them the space to uh, come up with uh, a modern political management with Chinese characteristics. But it's going to go one way or the other. It's it's and there's generational change in China is faster than anywhere else in the world. And there will be a new generation coming along uh, and they will demand power and they will demand the right to construct, to, to cope with the mistakes of their predecessors. Uh, things will change. I really want to keep asking questions, but I have a whole room of good friends and people who want to ask questions too, so I'm going to defer to them. So if you'd like to ask a question, please raise your hand. This is live online, so we're going to let a microphone come to you, and then if you'd identify yourself and, and ask a question. There's a gentleman in the blue coat here in the third row. Thank you. I'm Wayne Morrison with CRS. Um, just a quick question about the current administration's approach to China, which appears to be a lot more confrontational than what we've seen in the past. For example, the use of the Section 301 increased tariffs and uh, the demand that China make structural reforms to its economy. I'm just curious of what your take on how Beijing is, is viewing what the U.S. is doing. My great concern is that instead of uh, getting China to reform its economy, we're sort of pushing them in a corner where they might force leaders to become even more interventionalist in order to keep the economy growing. So I'm wondering, like, how are the Chinese viewing these U.S. demands on, on their economic structure? Where do you think this is all going to end up? Uh, well, let me, let me first disaggregate our demands. Uh, following Adam Posen, there are necessary demands, there are exaggerated demands, and there are crazy demands. Uh, it is absolutely necessary for it to address the issues of intellectual property theft, forced intellectual property transfer, uh, access to the services sector, and uh, unfair rules like, like the fact that competition policy applies to our companies but not to their state enterprises. We have to do something about that. Uh, and that's on the agenda. Then there are the exaggerated things. Uh, uh, focus on a 5% Chinese tariff on cars. Now, China saved our car industry. GM was headed for bankruptcy 
absolutely unsalvageable, but they started making a lot of money in the China market. And driving in China, you're always in sight of two or three Buicks. And if you go to Japan or South Korea, you're never in sight of any American cars. It's, it's once an hour. We'll see one, maybe. China's a much more open economy than Japan. There's no comparison. It's open to our trade. It's open to our direct investment. Uh, it's a more open market for corporate control. And foreigners have about twice the share of bank assets in China that they have in Japan. Well, we have a deputy USDR who goes around saying, oh, China's the most protectionist economy in the world. I could start with North Korea, but let's look at Japan. <laughs> this stuff is nonsense. And, and the issues of industrial policy, of subsidies, are ones we have dealt with in the past very successfully with other countries like Japan and like South Korea. And we have dealt with much more difficult issues in connection with China's WTO. Remember, these, these are things that China is going to fix anyway. And, and we have a long history of negotiating these without declaring them an enemy. And, and you've got to change your whole economic structure. And then there's a completely crazy one, the trade deficit. Everybody who's taken the first month of economics knows that the trade deficit or surplus is how much we invest and spend minus how much uh, uh, we save. And the Chinese have no leverage over that. We can move it from, from China to Vietnam and Bangladesh, but we can't reduce it by declaring war on China. Uh, so how do the Chinese respond? Well, at the overall level, uh, the Chinese elite loves Trump. And one professor said to me two weeks ago, in the United States, the elite hates Trump and the masses love him. He said, in China, the, the elite loves Trump, and the masses hate him for, for nationalistic reasons. And they like him because, because he's pushing on Xi Jinping. And uh, on a policy level, they started off just being completely confused. Lu He came here and said, what do you want? Give me a list. We said, well, we don't have a list. We, don't just, we just don't like you. <laughs> and then we gave them a list. Of, you know, you've got to transform your economy into one that looks like ours. Uh, the Chinese are going to try to do the things they were going to do anyway, and, and working on intellectual property issues, uh, liberalizing trade, liberalizing access to the services. They're planning a lot of that anyway. And Trump. They, they have this tremendous pushback at home, and Trump has just added to that pushback. But it will happen. And, and on the, the larger structural issues, the crazy stuff and the totally exaggerated stuff, they're just going to 
they're just going to have to dig in their heels. Uh, they, their system analyzes these things and addresses them very rationally. Uh, I've got a long section in my book about the Chinese meritocracy. It's another one of these areas where there's a whole U.S. academic literature that says, no, they're, uh, they're not a meritocracy. Uh, it's all ideology and methodological fetishes. Um, they are very good at thinking these kinds of things through. Uh, and so that, that will be their approach. Um, the, the larger problem is the, the Pence speech that basically says, we want a new Cold War. And the Chinese reaction was, well, we don't want a new Cold War, but that sounds like Winston Churchill's Iron Curtain speech. I guess we have to accept what the US wants. Uh, and it's going to take a long, long time to fix that. All right, I'm going to need a lot of David Rubenstein uh, imitators here. And I think what we're going to do is we're going to uh, collect several questions, let you pick and choose the ones you like the most, uh, and, then, uh, and then wrap things up just because oh, we're, we're coming on time. So we're going to go to the back of the room, uh, and then we're going to come here to the front, and then this lady here. So we're going to take those three. And it's a nice actual triangle, or a straight line. Sorry, you have to. Hey, thank you. Um, I wanted to ask something about um, how you see the policy process going on at the governmental level, Xi Jinping's level right now. You said sort of two slightly different things in your presentation. One was that he did a very good job of consolidating power in his first term and of reducing the size of the standing committee. But at the same time, you said he's had a very difficult time actually getting his policies implemented. And I wonder if part of this points to the rise of outside interest groups that you've n frequently hinted at, like the private sector, and the ability to have effective veto overrides over central policy control. Okay, so interest groups question first. We'll come here. Thank you. Uh, Hung Tran, formerly IIF. Uh, you mentioned the market allocation of resources as one of the key challenges uh, for China. Uh, uh, um, Li Kai-Fu, uh, who wrote the book, The AI Revolution in China, and I think who spoke here a week or two weeks ago, uh, contend that the market for private equity capital for high-tech and AI in particular is the most cutthroat competition, competitive that he has seen. So my question is, do you think that kind of competition for AI and high-tech in China, according to Li Kai-Fu, can it take, again, traction, and can it be replicated and spread throughout the economy, and therefore solve the problem that you pose? Okay. There was one more right here. Yes. Thank you. I'm Chen Liu from China Xinhua News Agency. And uh, in your presentation, you've just mentioned about the political and economic uh, weakness a weakness of China. So uh, from your observation that what could be the most uh, imminent and uh, the most uh, serious challenge that you think China is facing? And I've got a follow-up for the f uh, previous question from that gentleman is, um, uh, there are talkings about uh, nowadays the US and the, uh, the US economy is decoupling from the Chinese economy. So do you think uh, that's the case? That's what the US government is heading to? and. Uh, do you worry about that? Thanks. Okay. Okay. Um, I'm not sure I understood the interest group question. Um, so let me deal with the the 
the others first. Uh, on artificial intelligence, uh, there are certain areas where China is taking leadership. We saw this with Japan. There were certain areas where, uh, despite its structure, uh, Japan, despite the fact that most, most sectors uh, wasn't working, you get a few Singapore Airlines kinds of state enterprises and, 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 and initiatives that are successful. And China has big advantages. Uh, where those advantages come from uh, huge subsidies and denying others access and so on, I think we have to push back uh, and, and, and uh, uh, use some combination of uh, sanctions and keeping them out of our, our market until, uh, until they agree to play fair. And I, I think Huawei is a situation like that. Uh, Huawei is about to take over 5G for the world. And China would never let us have that kind of access to the Chinese economy. So, uh, are we going? Uh, there are areas where we need to push back. Uh, there are areas where China will be fabulously successful. Uh, you know, the the Japanese were very good at cars. Uh, we all drive better cars because the Japanese were good at cars. Um, it hasn't killed us. Uh, people thought it would kill us at the time, but no, you just end up driving better cars. Uh, but in strategic areas where China is taking, is being very successful by totally unfair means, we have to push back. The other thing is we've got to get our act together. Most of our great economic innovative successes started with the U.S. government. Places like DARPA, the National Institutes of Health, and we're destroying those today. And if we destroy through some kind of anti-government ideology the roots of our own success, we deserve our fate. Uh, but we need to address the problem here. And the most important area of that is not high tech at all. It's our workers. Our workers are being displaced. Six out of seven manufacturing job losses are because of technology. And there are jobs opening up. There are almost an equal number of jobs opening up in the services economy. China handled this very well. They took these people and moved them into the services economy. Our system now militates against that. When, when, they, when agriculture was declining because of efficiency, we built the national railroads, we built the national road system against congressional Republican resistance, but we built them. And, and people moved to the cities and and we ended up happy. Uh, now the same thing is happening in manufacturing. You have to move people into the services economy. But our, our Democrats are dependent on the manufacturing union. So you're not allowed to talk about anything about except getting manufacturing jobs back. 
And so we don't do what society needs. And on the Republican side, there's a problem because all the research shows that when the factory town loses its factory, people just sit around helpless. You have to not just retrain them, you have to tell them where the jobs are and help them move. And if you do that, uh, the transition is smooth and everybody ends up richer. But we've got kind of a bipartisan agreement not to deal with the issue and instead to blame it on China. And that's causing us both the most severe domestic problems and the biggest international problem we've got. So uh, de decoupling. Uh, we need to stop China from stealing our intellectual property and uh, buying our most sensitive uh, companies. Uh, that's an imperative. Uh, uh, but the word decoupling has such vast implications. What we need is targeted policies, some of which are being implemented, to deal with those uh, problems in a technocratic, calculated way. Uh, the, the coupling of the United States and China has lifted much of the world out of poverty. It's moved us into a world of a services economy. The Chinese economy is now uh, considerably more than half services. Uh, you don't have to do back-breaking labor anymore. You sit at your computer. Uh, it's a lot better. Uh, there's enormous security benefits to us uh, from this growth. Uh, a place like Bangladesh should be a giant jungle Somalia. Uh, everybody knew when Bangladesh was created at the beginning of the 70s that it was hopeless. But the Sino-American economy, this, this would be the greatest source of terrorism on earth. But instead, the Sino-American economic collaboration had the, the textile industry slop over. The textile industry moves out of China into Bangladesh, but the US is the biggest investor in Bangladesh. And suddenly you don't have 90 million people contributing to terrorism. Ethiopia, when I worked there, was this horrible, horrible place. Uh, Recently, it's been the world's fastest growing country because, because the coupling of the United States and China has made it work. Africa used to grow between zero and two percent. For a while, it was doing six. Unbelievable. That's because the Sino-American uh, coupling. We need more of that coupling, and we need to decouple and push back in limited, calculated ways. We need to do it very decisively and toughly where it's needed. And we don't need to sort of declare a new Cold War. Uh, these problems are manageable. Fantastic. Bill, you're a, a real tour de force, not just your books. Um, Clear-headed thinking I th uh, is what jumps out at me. Smart. Courageous, you're, you're asking a lot of, of leaders, but it's, it's what's needed. That's what leadership is supposed to be. 
uh, your early book on the rise of China uh, heralded its success. Your new book heralds the crisis of that success and the challenge that they face, that we all face. Um, you, you've provoked a lot of thinking. You've also put forward uh, good ideas pass forward. I, I hope people are listening. Uh, they need to, uh, and we need to keep uh, talking about your ideas uh, until they do. Everyone, please join me in thanking Bill Overholt. Thank you.